Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Ash Thorpe, and this is going to be episode 139. This week's episode is a live recording from Industry Workshops event held in London this past August of 2016. We are joined by video game and film concept designer, Mr. Mike Hill, where we discuss the organic chemistry which goes into interpreting his favorite films, the rigorous process he goes through for creating his functional concept designs, and the psychology and careful consideration behind creating a powerful work of art. This episode is brought to you by Learn Squared, an art education platform founded and powered by industry-leading artists. Learn cutting-edge art techniques and discover firsthand how other artists from around the world learn. Head over to LearnSquared.com and apply the promo code COLLECTIVE during checkout for 10% discount off your order. Here we go, everybody. Episode 139 with Mike Hill. Let's roll. So, yeah, please welcome them to the stage, Ash Thorpe and Mike Hill. Thank you guys. Thank you guys so Thank much. You. Thank you for being here. Thank you to Industry Workshops for everybody putting this together. This is a this has been a long time in the making actually, so it's really cool to do it. And also just like a, a little um, you know, segue is I usually do these podcasts from my home. I'm usually in my boxers. And uh, I'm, I never meet. He's in his boxes now. There's, yeah. there's no no trousers here. <laughs> and it's it's really cool to be here in a public place and also be doing it publicly. We've done a couple of these before, but uh, I feel like there's a completely different energy by meeting and looking at somebody and being able to have an engagement. So I'm really excited about this, actually. So thank you guys also for being here, and I'm hopefully you guys enjoy this episode and everybody that's listening to it and future time and space and then the internet. So yeah, but also thank you for being here. No pleasure. Thanks for the invite. Yeah. I'm really upset that I didn't get a chance to see your talk. I'm, I'm looking forward to rewatching it, but we're going to get into, you know, your theories on Terminator and all that kind of stuff. But some of the stuff I really want to talk with you about is, um, design. Cause I know you're really in love with design. You're really focused on design, not just in props and all that kind of stuff, but also in story. Uh, where does this come from? Um, Originally, I became fascinated with story because I just got fed up of making meaningless stuff or being at a point in a process with a design where I was trying to make a decision on what to do with it mm. and not having any direction to go in. Just going, well, what difference does it make whether I choose red or blue here? What, it's, it's, it's completely arbitrary, it seems. Mm-hmm. And because I couldn't come up with a system for decision making in, in design, I just felt like it was meaningless to me and that just made me start looking into what can be what can design be used for what what is it doing when we use a design and it's about enhancing people's experience of life which sounds a bit cheesy that's pretty accurate Um, but yeah ultimately we design things to to enhance living and that eventually took me down a kind of rabbit hole of of reading and um, studies until I eventually found kind of studies on mythology and and storytelling as an actual subject Mm. And then once I started reading that, it really demystified uh, a lot of what I realized design is for unconsciously, but didn't have a conscious awareness of. And then once I started looking at films where guys, you know, like Cameron or Spielberg were using design intentionally, Mm. it kind of made it really clear to me, like, you know, how there is a system for making great design. And we should be learning that rather than, uh, not rather than, but as well as the technical skills. But, um, we we have so much technical skill in this room 
Um, so many people are excellent artists and design uh, and you know visual uh, kind of composers, um, but we don't really seem to have much discussion about the why we make the images or or what they can do for for people you know digesting them. Um, so that that kind of just sent me down a, a, a rabbit hole of all sorts of weird subjects, from psychology to lots of other stuff. Yeah, you you, you go quite deeply into it. I, I remember watching your last talk on contact and the chair design, the design of the chair and um, how far you went down that rabbit hole. And I, that was, was a special film for me in my childhood. And I never really thought about all those details. Do you feel that when you go and study these things so thoroughly and so closely that it de- demystifies the magic of it? Because, you know, you go as a, as a child and you watch something completely oblivious to all these things, but you're affected by it. Mm. You think by studying it, it, it ruins it for you? Or what, how does it, how is your experience now with it? Um, I've noticed that that when I look, uh, I look at films quite a lot. When I look at them very, very closely, and I've found that actually there's a there's a, a disengagement at some point in your brain that when a film is made really well, you cannot consciously pay attention to it for more than thirty seconds. You you it, it overwhelms the senses and just becomes an experience. Even when you're trying to concentrate, if you sit there and watch a great movie for about 30 seconds you can be like what's going on in this scene what's the, what's how's the cinematographer composing this how's the music being designed to help this experience and within 30 seconds you'll just find yourself just taking it in and you're you're disengaged consciously mm-hmm. so i found that actually the closer i look at it it doesn't stop me from being able to enjoy a film the first time round mm. the only time that i cannot enjoy a film is when it's not made well enough to stop my conscious brain from going why is that happening what what's that for Mm. but great movie making doesn't doesn't allow that opportunity for your conscious brain to you know pull it apart if that makes sense yeah um so i actually find that i'm getting more and more magic out of studying the films because it's two sides of the same coin on the one side is the experience and it's beautiful and you you experience it and it's great and then you dig down underneath the surface and you go oh that's why it's working and yeah that for me is like the like euphoric moments where I look at something I've seen 50 times Mm. and then I'm like, holy crap, that's a really clear and like tangible symbol that that they've planted here that has completely gone over my conscious brain or under my conscious brain for the last, you know, 20 years. Yeah. And Terminator is one of those films that you just just soak it up. Mm. And then when you look at it closely, you soak it up because it's so well crafted and so well considered and designed. And, you know, that's, that's an exciting thing to realize that Cameron has put that much love into it, you know? Sure. Um, so yeah, no, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't, um, take the magic away from me. That's cool. I mean, it, it kind of does for me personally. That's why I'm asking. I didn't, I missed your talk, so I don't know exactly the nuances of, I caught a little bit of what happened, but, um, like kind of just you digging really deeply into Cameron's film. Do you think that say like a director, like let's use Terminator, for example, and then James Cameron, for example, as a director, me knowing, you know, a little bit about him having watched, you know, documentaries on him and read his books and stuff. Do you think, how intentional do you think it is? Or do you think it's just instinct? Do you think that some of this stuff can be taught or is it just something kind of, you know, I I feel like some directors just have that palette, that, that taste, Mm. and they have the ability to really just visualize it they make a team that would make this thing happen how, how how intentional do you think a lot of that stuff is or is that you reaching for you know grasping for meanings that apply i've, I've thought about it quite a lot and i think that it's it's definitely a combination of the two yeah. i mean the thing is when when a film is affecting you it's using things that are interacting with your subconscious 
which means that the, the inspiration for that decision from the director could be subconscious because yeah. it's like the subconscious making a, a, a you know a decision yeah. that permeates in the film um, but I think it's a combination of two because ultimately a director doesn't make the film by himself he has to communicate to the production team what to put in the film mm. he has to communicate to the production designer the cinematographer the lighting and if it was purely gut instinct he wouldn't be able to articulate why or what they need to do yeah, and yeah. I think that I think I've noticed for sure when I looked, I, I put the audio commentary on for Contact where um, Robert Zemeckis talks with the yeah, VFX. That's a good one, actually. It's a really good one, yeah. yeah. If, you, if you haven't listened to that, if you like Contact, I'd say, I highly recommend it. If you're okay with ruining, de- demystifying some of the magic, I would say go and study that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's really, it's really useful to hear the guys talking about the development yeah. while you watch it. It's really, I, I love it. But um, what I found was that when I listened to Contact, for example, mm. the scene, I went to inquire whether he mentions any of the stuff I talked about. Yeah. And I went in and I was like, what's he going to say? And he does explicitly say that he was really proud to get the Joan of Arc um, association in. And as soon as he yeah. says it, he backs away. He's like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Like, sure. Because directors don't want to be, they don't want to expose, they don't, want, they don't want you to know that they're, they're carefully manipulating you're unconscious. As soon as you know that's happening, it it does change your interpretation of the, the naturalness of the movie. What you're talking about, yeah. Yeah, and as, as much as um, I think that considering we're all making stuff, we're making games, we're making movies, we're making entertainment, if you don't want to know these kind of things that are happening, then that really limits you as a designer because we're supposed to be the craftspeople that make experiences so to lock yourself away from understanding the the, the underlying structure mm, yeah. means that you can't really maximize yourself as an artist. Um, so, you know, I, know I, I have noticed that directors don't talk about these things. And when they do let something slip, they immediately, whoa, shouldn't yeah. have said that. Steve, even Steven Spielberg doesn't do commentary, I think, actually, because his whole job, as you said, is to manipulate you, really. I mean, not in a negative way, in a, in a great way. And... Um, I think any time that they will do commentary, it's, it's, it's really interesting about Fincher. I really study Fincher well because he's well-documented. Same with uh, Stanley Kubrick as well. Um, I think that's why he's still relevant besides the fact that his films are great and very unique and different and they will constantly give you something new every time you watch it. But I think by the fact that they have been able to share it, but I think that's, it's a double-edged sword, you know, mm-hmm. like they're, they're, they have, you know, their film and then they also have this thing. It's about the experience of making the film and it kind of, for me, at least for me personally, it kind of destroys the art of the film in a sense. I'm okay with that because I'm not sure if I subscribe with ignorance is bliss. And sometimes it is, but I think with knowledge on film, because I love it so much like you and understanding design, I think it's just like comes with the territory, you know? So it's like the price that you pay, I guess. Yeah. I also think that the, these guys don't share these, these methodologies of what they're doing when they construct a scene or when they construct a film. Yeah. And I find that that's kind of sad because I do think that a lot of our entertainment is substandard because these really important components of experience building are not known. Yeah. And I think that, that if Spielberg was to let slip a few of the things that he's genuinely thinking about when he makes a film, that this could, could help revolutionize the way we make films. And I, I find it odd that the guy can, can actually... Um, you know, apparently he made more money from Jurassic World than the studio did, which oh, yeah. kind of makes sense of why he would greenlight it. But it's clearly not a film that fits with the value system of Spielberg. Yeah. So he could have, I feel like he crafted, you know, 
I don't know, at least a more moral film. Um, you really never know with somebody that's so far away from our reality what they have to deal with on a day-to-day yeah, basis. So yeah, it's yeah. so hard to really yeah, understand knows. exactly their choices and why they would make them. And their pressures and their, the situations of, you know, beyond us. You did it to make a paycheck possibly to go do a film that you was always wanting to, just didn't have the capital to do so. Yeah, you know? so he could don't be, get me wrong. I'm not, not criticized. I love no, Steven course. Spielberg and no. the guy's done, done more for, for, in a really, this sounds really cheesy, but I'll, I'll tell you anyway. Um, I found out last year that my dad was telling me that he took me and my sister to see Hook back in uh, was it 1992 yeah. or something, um, 93, something like that. And I would have been about six or seven, something like that. And my sister was two or three years older. And we were obviously just watching Hook and watching, you know, men in tights fly around the skies and go yeah. through this little adventure. And it's not one of my favorite Spielberg films by a long stretch. But my dad said that during that film, he had the crystal clear realization that he was never his work over me and my sister because he's he was watching the character in the film robin williams character yeah basically lose contact with his kids because he was neglecting them through work and he he made a decision that he was never going to miss our sporting events hmm. from school because that's what happens in the story yeah. now if i can actually have one anecdote in my immediate family of spielberg affecting a, a major life decision yeah and millions billions billions of people have seen spielberg's movies that all have these values then it's impossible to quantify but this guy could have had a bigger in, uh, kind of impact on society than gandhi in fact likely did because he's 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 building in in psychology it's called soft paternalism it's taking advantage of people's psychology to help them live better lives which is the opposite of propaganda mm. which is what Transformers is which is basically trying to get people to sign what? up to the army <laughs> by building the association of if you sign up and become a, a soldier you'll hang out with cool transforming robots and meet hot chicks yeah it's a, that's it, why it the works. military gives Mike, Michael Bay full access to all their new hardware so he can show it off and basically promote the military now Soft paternalism, Spielberg, propaganda, Michael Bay. Like- They're both designs, though. That's the interesting thing. We talk, I was talking about the swastika, the design, the branding of Hitler and the swastika and how brilliant it is, but how horrible it is, but how brilliant it is. It's effective, brilliant design. Brilliant, yeah, but, but it's, horribly its moral values are repugnant. So It's really cool the effect that Hook had on your dad, though. I mean, that's, again, the immersion of things. What do you think that's going to be happening with, like, storytelling? You know, um, there's been a lot of talk about, like, VR and all that stuff. What's your thoughts on VR and the immersion of storytelling? And what do you think that... We're, you know, I always think that, you know, my daughter or her, or her kids are going to look back and be like, man, dad used to go in the room, a bunch of strangers in, in, in the dark and watch movies and on the flat screen. And how old and lame is that? You know, like, what, what's the future, do you think, in storytelling? And the value of that is it going to stay and i haven't i haven't given a lot i'm a bit of a hermit i I don't look at new things and i don't i'm not not really good at like exposing myself to new things so i I still haven't tried vr oh you haven't tried it um yeah i sit at home read books and watch the same movie over and over again like a weirdo (laughs) um so i don't really have acts i don't have much makes a good talk though yeah well yeah (laughs) occasionally there's a there's a there's a payoff from it but um I think that VR is going to have to completely change the the rule book on conventions of experience because it can't use any of the conventions, well, not any, it can't use most of the conventions of filmmaking, and Spielberg's already recognized this. You cannot direct the attention of the audience in VR. Yeah. And that's, 
that's a whole new challenge. It is. It's much more immersive too. Yeah, it's a whole new. It's a new era. spectrum. Yeah. It's a whole, and it, yeah. the potential is massive. But yeah. it's it's gonna it's a new language. Well, Pokemon and, Go is kind of like a the beginning step of a somewhat AR game that augments reality, but it's also playable and active. But which is interesting too, and it has a little bit of a story to it, like mm. whether people know it or not. But that's I was just curious because I think if there's something really interesting to be thought about with design in regards to design, where future of storytelling is. Because at the end of the day, we're just storytelling apes basically and exchanging ideas and stories have actually you know i think you get deep into this you probably know about this stuff but you know our the way our minds work the way that we retain information we can't just retain words we have to have a story that helps us mm-hmm. um through things and stories are what has helped us evolve but right now it's getting quite weird because you have like you know transformers or something that's like completely frivolous but it is a design still but i guess it comes down to more or less tastes and what your ambitions are what you get out of it socially um you don't watch any recent films you haven't seen anything recent that you liked um no i see the i see the occasional film i saw mad max um just because i didn't get through the trailer because i genuinely just didn't think it was i just thought oh god another action film yeah and I completely misjudged that one um, yeah. because people, you know, people from the walks of life were going, dude, you need to watch this. It's, yeah. it's great. Yeah. And watching that was like a revelation of that beautiful filmmaking that's yeah. really story driven, but unconscious story driven. Um, yeah. I'm, I actually want to do a breakdown of it at some point um, yeah, because there's cool. so much hidden mythological themes in there yeah. that really hit hard that you would never consciously recognize. That's why everyone unanimously, even, you know, People like my mum can watch a film like Mad Max and go, mm-hmm. yeah, you know what? I've, I've enjoyed that. It's a bit universal, yeah. And mm. uh, wait until you get down to that rabbit hole and find out the production and how it was made in the editing room and just the, the many films the it was and what, yeah. it, what it was going to be. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. Um, we talked a little bit about design. I'm curious to think about, hear about your thoughts on taste and style. What makes an artist taste and what makes style to you in your mind? I don't think that style is something that can be consciously gained. I think it's an emergent property of just training. And I, I don't, I, for some reason, I'm, I'm going to, this is going to sound so ambiguous and I'm aware that it, it always sounds a bit weird when I sort of say something like abstract, but I think that style is the after effect of a process rather than an ingredient in the process. And I think that style if if the core values that you put into something if you follow a really nice functional process about um what you want to achieve and why and you know why Mm. then what will happen at the end is something will have a certain style by default but i don't i personally try and avoid any decision making in my work that that is stylistic for example um so decisions that i make will be uh i don't know if you guys saw tobias manowitz uh talk yeah. So he talks about intrinsic design theory and this, he, he kind of introduced me to this theory a couple of years ago and it was really important for me to, to, to learn that concept of intrinsic design theory, core values, and then let those core values be like the, the commandments for your process. Mm. So that in any given design situation, you say, what should I do here? Well, I know that the first thing on my list of commandments is that this is not in you know science fiction future this is realistic future and then there's all sorts of secondary requirements for that commandment to be fulfilled and if you follow the commandments then you're then the the end result will be this consistent um kind of tight 
package yeah. that will have its own style mm. by by definition of following a process. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I, I, yeah, I guess I guess when something hits us hard stylistically, it's because it's pressing some button in us mm-hmm. innately. Yeah. Um, so some people do have these really beautiful, unique styles, but it's it's a byproduct of their internal rule system mm. in their process. And I, yeah, that, that sounds ambiguous. I know I need some motion, some graphics to display it. It's that a bit as a meta, concept, but it's, but yeah, it's a bit meta. But yeah. but effectively, yeah, you're making millions of decisions in your brain when you're making a piece of artwork. Just just the simple act of picking up a pencil is one of the most is one of the biggest miracles in neuroscience. The amount of calculations your brain makes yeah. to simply move the muscles is incredible. And it's the culmination of millions of micro decisions. And that, that's what eventually leads to a finished product that has style. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's unique to everyone. It's just a matter of really intensely overwhelming your brain with thinking about it. Uh, you know, thinking, thinking about it when you're walking down the street, think about your design, think about the effect of every, you know, decision you make when you make a painting. Think about why you're using certain colors. Mm. And I think once you start untangling that thought you start to realize oh maybe, maybe that's just a habit that i've developed that is limiting my work or maybe yeah that's something that's enhancing my work and it's about the the, the pushing and pulling of that that kind of thought process i think how important is does that make any sense i'm not sure it, if it makes it makes sense to me yeah I, and i and i and i think that there's a lot of interesting things that you touched upon and i think one of the things that you keep mentioning is is self-evaluation how important is self-evaluation like whether it's of other people, but mostly yourself. But when you, when you go through your process of making the work that you make, how important is it for you? Do you feel that self-evaluation sometimes get in the way and hinders you from actually producing great work? Do you think that sometimes work just comes out effortlessly or do you think overthinking it is what the art is itself for you? I think different people have different responses. Yes, I, I put everything, every thing that I've consciously tried to improve in my work has been a, a process of, brutal self-evaluation mm. um where i'm really i look at decisions that i make and i go that's just not that doesn't that doesn't feel right or it, it doesn't it's not right for a logical reason or it's not right for an emotional reason yeah but i don't really hold much sway in other people's opinions of my work like not because i'm arrogant but because i've already got enough internal critique i don't need to muddy the waters with further opinions um you know, it's, I'm still working be tough with client work then, huh? To have that. Yeah. yeah. Like, uh, how do you navigate that then? Because, you know, your client is the one that's paying you for the job and whether, you know, that, that's, that's part of the rules. It's like they have a destination they need you to take them to. How do you navigate that? Is that a tough, tough thing for you? And, um, I consider every brief to be like a technical task, like an engineering task. So yeah. For example, if someone asked me to design a vehicle, I don't go, cool, see you in two weeks. I'm going to go and design a vehicle on what I want to do. I will literally go around each department and I'll say, well, what are your, what's your investment in this? What, what, what kind of limitations do you have with rigging for, you know, the various parts? Like go to gameplay. What exactly is the player? Do you imagine the player seeing when they're in the cockpit of this vehicle, mm-hmm. you know, and finding out all the gameplay requirements, all the animation requirements, all of the logical requirements, like what is a vehicle going to do? And the more you collect information from everyone in the studio, first of all, everyone recognizes that you're, you're paying attention to their needs. Yeah. And then you create a beautiful list of constraints that forces the design out of the ether because you go, oh, well, if I, if I can't do that and, I, and they need that, well, that, that locks down this potential pathway. Mm. So effectively what I'm doing is not generating ideas, 
I, for example, I don't do thumbnails and I don't do variations and I tell clients this. And some of them are very resistant to this. They're like, what? That's you're not, you're not going to make variations. And it's like, yeah. well, I'm not, well, I'm just going to like punch wildly in the air and hope that one of these is good. Mm. Like, I think the, the other way to do it, which I think is more productive is to systematically find out every functional requirement that every department needs and then narrow it down to one design. And if it satisfies every department, mm. then you've succeeded. So, and, if someone has an your opi- process, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So recently I did some stuff for Call of Duty, um, for the new Infinite Warfare, like a vehicle. And it was the first design that came out was the finished design because I went through and found out what every single person needed from, from the design, mm-hmm. gameplay, animation. Um, you is know, it, what, was that, a, is that kind of like a design by committee or no? Is it no. more like, cause you have your intention and your, where you're going for it. Okay. Yeah. The, the committee establishes all of the needs. Okay. That's what a committee is. That's like for. a really detailed brief. Basically. Yes. So you're kind of using, using that as a brief to basically help you articulate your decision making through the design process to get yes. to the final result. Okay. Yes. So the, the committee is great in a design process for establishing all of the rules of what you need to achieve. I think design by committee through the process is Mm. really dangerous because everyone, you know, you get programmers coming in and sharing their opinion because they watch Battlestar Galactica at the weekend and they think the project is moving in a new direction. Valid, Galactica, you know, it's valid. (laughs) Like, (laughs) like, "Ah." yeah, it's like, what? It's like, dude, like, do I come in and tell you that I don't like the number seven, therefore take it out of your code? Yeah, you could. uh, I wonder what, I wonder what Call of Duty would be without the number seven in the code. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It'd be an interesting experience, but, um, no, I'm, I'm really, I, this makes me though. sound like a dickhead, like as if I'm like, no, I'm doing it my way on the highway. Like, I really care about satisfying every department. Yeah, I'm getting that. And, and yeah. it's that initial care that will lead to a good design. It's tough to care so much about what you do and not feel like the world thinks you're a dick. It is, because no matter what you're going to do, they're going to, so there's somebody that's going to be there that you're going to hurt their feelings because your opinion is so strong because you have such a strong, you know, vision in your head or whatever it might be. Um, that's a tough one, you know, and navigating those social fields is really difficult. Mm. Uh, study. I'm not very good at that, by the way. Like I, I piss off too many people. Um, but I, I'm, I'm okay with that because I know I will never hold my ground in a design discussion for the sake of it. Okay. If someone comes up and says, dude, that's not right because we need it to do this. Yeah. I'm like, cool, we're changing it. Yeah. But if someone just goes, well, you know what? Like, that's not the way I would like it to be. Well, who who cares? Like, who are you? Like, that's like opinions without knowledge are really quite annoying. And everybody seems to have opinions and most of the time they're without knowledge and it's really quite upsetting, you know? So, but that's just a common trait, especially now when you have like, the access to Facebook and it's so easy or Twitter or whatever to throw your like uneducated opinion about something out there, which is like, eh, it's just part of it though. So, um, let's not go down that rabbit hole. Um, dream project, a dream job for you. What is that? I'm Any, trying to, I'm trying to work, that, I'm trying to work that out for it? myself. Actually. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of going through a transient period where, I really, maybe other people will feel the same way. I'm just a bit perplexed by what it is that I want to do. Okay. I really don't know. So um, you're kind of in transition, kind of figuring it out? I'm in transition. Like for the last two years, I, I basically work, I work to save money and then I, I become a hermit for a couple of months and I read books and I 
read a lot and I make lots of brainstorms about things that seem is, is this a common thing for you yeah this is just yeah. my pattern um, yeah. so every I, two years or so you kind of disappear for a little bit yeah pretty much like well, more frequently so I do a three month work project and then I'll the sabbatical then cut my costs and, and be a hermit for a couple of months and, yeah. and, and study and I don't know where it's going but something's emerging like the talks for example that I've been giving which I really love giving because it makes me learn in order to try and explain something yeah it forces you to, to realize that you don't fully understand it, actually. 100%, yeah. So I'd actually recommend to anyone um, who's learning stuff, just try and imagine explaining what you know to somebody. Yeah. And suddenly you realize... That you, add that, too. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. suddenly you try realize... You, engage them. Yeah. yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, so right now I'm just trying to express things that I think I know, mm. theory. Yeah. And while I'm doing that, things are emerging where I'm like, maybe I could do this, you know, I've had some really nice contacts from from studios um, who've watched the, me talk about film, and I've actually asked about can can I talk to their story writers and help them, hmm. you know. So there's something emerging where I'm like maybe this is the direction I'm going in, but I don't cool. I don't know. I'm kind of directionless at the moment a little bit. Um, just maybe other people feel that way too. You just you you know that you've got the energy to do something, yeah, um, but you just you don't know where to put it. You know, sure. Well, you're putting the energy, and I think it's coming across, and I think people are, it's resonating with people. So if there's ever a time, I mean, I've said this many times, if there's ever a time to do something quite bespoke and unique, it's now. You know, there's YouTube celebrities. There's, there's quite a few people that I've noticed on, like, Vimeo that dissect films, and they do a really great job. They curate it. They go, there's, like, the nerd writer. Have you ever watched mm, any of his yeah, stuff? Hey, he does yeah, a really great job. Great. Whether his opinion is aligns with my own, I, I still think it's quite great. And I think the thing about the Internet, if you have a really opinion no matter whether it's good or bad or i agree or not it's there's there's an audience for you you know and i think it's actually quite interesting i'm curious to see where all this energy and effort that you're putting forth is going to go and create for yourself and you know whether you're going to start here and you're going to go to the next spot one thing i want to talk to you about too is is a conundrum that i find myself in quite a bit as well and probably some people in this room and everybody that's probably listening to the podcast is um the conundrum of really having all that love and design and passion for something, but then working on something and realizing that it's just not, it's, it's never going to go anywhere with that. You're never going to be able to put all that stuff into it. How do you, I mean, we kind of touched on that in the last couple of questions, but how do you kind of navigate that? Like, have you always been like this? And like when it started, when you started to do, you know, designs and games or whatever the projects you're working on, do you, did you have a, a struggle trying to figure out a way to like insert yourself and put your, you know, your passions in properly? And like, how do you navigate that? I found that, that just even when you don't have a strategy and you just dig in deep and just work, and this, this sounds like one of those well-worn cliches, but for the first five years of, of designing stuff, I was just in max helplessly moving around it with no clear direction mm. but none of that time was wasted um during that time your brain is is learning stuff about sure. abstract patterns of how to use the software and stuff like that yeah. um i found that only recently do i feel like i i don't understand my direction but i understand a lot of the the design theory which is the result of years of just experimenting and, and being consistently devoted to, to being in that screen. Mm, yeah. um, so I, and this, I know this isn't a helpful thing, but it's the truth that when you spend a lot of time, if you become obsessive, become obsessive and you will learn stuff. And I'm extremely obsessive. Yeah. Um, Stanley Kubrick was extremely obsessive too. I don't know if you, he's well documented to be extremely obsessive too. And whether that makes his films better or not, I'm not sure really what it was. But 
I think there's a, there's something about it that I think most people are attracted to that even obsession is is is, is a part of a human trait, you know, to really dig deeper and further. There's a Guillermo del Toro says it pretty perfectly in one of his uh, commentaries. I can't remember. It was like from Hellboy or something. But he said, and I believe this to be true, is he said, no matter what it is, religion or whatever, anybody will find their own self-truth. You know, they'll they'll find a way, whether it's, you know, um, there is such thing as like the chupacabra, you know, like people will just make that happen. You know, it's like a, it's a true thing or ghost or anything like that. So even with art or discovering art or like, you know, like I was hearing you're going really deeply into, you know, your process of analyzing Terminator, for example, what is one of the things that really stood out to you as being like a very powerful moment where you're like an aha moment, kind of like the chair in contact. What was that for you in the Terminator? The first moment where I realized that there was all sorts of stuff happening in the visual design of a film that was really, really intensive, but seemed incidental is actually Batman Begins. Oh yeah. There's a scene. It's one of my, I really love it. I think it's a beautiful scene. It's, um, Effectively, um, Bruce, as a young boy, he's just watched his parents die in the, in the alleyway. Yeah, it's a big moment. It's a big moment, and it's, yeah. it's a massive moment. And yeah. he's, the shot basically ends looking down the alleyway, and he's on his knees with his parents, and then it cuts to the inside of a police station. Mm. And we're looking out through the reception, and there's the, 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 the photographers trying to get photos of Bruce Wayne, you know, the, the, the son without, the, the famous uh, son of Gotham. And he stood there clutching his dad's jacket. And he's just stood there and he's afraid and he's in his little tuxedo because he's been at the theater yeah. and he's afraid. And then uh, a policeman comes in and sort of just comes down on one knee and is like, you know, really sympathetically, you know, are you, are you okay? Like, it's, it's okay. You're, you're safe. It's fine. And then he says, is this your dad's jacket? And he goes to take it. And then Bruce like clutches it harder. And then he says like, it's, it's okay, son. It's okay. And he takes the jacket and then he puts it around him like a cloak. Yeah. Yeah. And then he, he's like, it's going to be okay. And then the, com- the commissioner comes in and he's like, Gordon, like, yeah. get out of here. And you realize that this is Lieutenant Gordon, who yeah. is going to be like a father figure to, to Bruce and, and an accomplice in the future. And what is he doing? He's giving him the cloak of Batman, which is his father's jacket. Yeah, It's this symbol of like foreshadowing of what Bruce is going to become with the support of, of, of Gordon. It introduces you to Gordon in a way that's completely natural. It's just him being a nice guy. Yeah. And it, it tells you what Bruce is going to become and you, you don't notice it. Yeah. yeah I didn't it, it just seems it. like an incidental yeah. moment and it's you know, a very natural moment. It, and it's like, you know, yeah. he's just protecting and fatherly and it's just, there's so much happening in that. Yeah. That's just, the gesture is so symbolic. Yeah, it's very symbolic. Yeah. yeah. I didn't really think about it until like, that's the thing that's quite interesting about getting to know you and what you're talking about is like, there's these little moments where you're saying, and I'm going through the process of rewatching it in my mind and my memory and going like, wow, I didn't even think about all that context that was happening there. It's just, I was feeling it through the storytelling. And after I'm done with that, watching a film like that, I'm like, wow, there's a lot of depth and interesting things that are going on. So similar to say like Drive, for example, have you watched Drive? Mm, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of interesting like hidden context that's happening back and forth and the way the camera is set up and all that kind of stuff yeah 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 totally it's there's a lot of depth and layers into that and, and i think that um yeah that's a great that's a great moment too you, are you thinking that um chris nolan was cognizant of that and absolutely yeah 100 percent attention yeah but you see different different directors have different qualities and i started to think about this quite in depth by looking at it through the neuroscientific lens mm. and what Nolan has is an abundance of, to, to put it into terminology, which is going to sound very 
a bit lofty. Um, there are three parts of the brain which I talk about in the Terminator talk. There's the reptilian complex, which is the oldest oh, yeah. part. There's the limbic the system, brain, yeah. the social part, which is the emotional part. And there's the neocortex, which is the systematic uh, abstract thought and pattern solving and creativity. And it's rational. And you can actually feel in Christopher Nolan's movies that he has an excess of uh, the reptilian complex, the action, and he has an excess of the neocortex, like puzzle solving. But his films often are uh, referred to as feeling a bit cold, like unemotional. Yeah. Generally speaking. It, yeah, there, he's been... There's a bit of frostiness to him. I mean, he's, he's changing over time. You know, like Interstellar became very sentimental. But it actually the sentimentality though, yeah. was very, very... Um, Im- implanted yeah and it didn't happen naturally through the flow of the film it was just yeah. like occasional moments of intense um emotion yeah and i think with with nolan especially he studied literature at cambridge and he's it's really def- smart he's definitely definitely versed in Jungian psychology and these principles of symbology hmm. but i think he uses them more like a systematically than emotionally whereas spielberg i think is the kind of feeler who's like oh that it feels right to have yeah if, if Spielberg did that scene he might not be fully aware that he's doing it mm. but I think Nolan is very systematic he's very every scene and obviously the writer as well but every scene is considered with Nolan like a, a scientist analyzing a it's very a analytical dish. yeah it's very well planned whereas yeah. yeah you're right I think even with um like Spielberg for example um I'm very forgiving with Spielberg because he's so immersive and there's a lot of like um inconsistencies and shots and placements and all that kind of stuff. But I don't care about that because he's taking me on a journey and I'm okay with the fact that there's flaws there. It's okay because I'm enjoying the process of it. And I think that's one thing that's quite interesting. And in comparison to say like, you know, Nolan with that has a completely different palette, you know, is there a modern day director that you really admire? I really like Denny Villeneuve. Yeah. Yeah. Denny Villeneuve. Um, Because he, he's like the only director in Hollywood that is making films that really stop you in your tracks and make you think, and leaves a, a, a resonance in your head for days, you know, like, um, I don't know if you guys have seen Prisoners, uh, really recommend it. If, yeah, some, some guys have seen it, uh, but really recommend watching that movie. There's some weird logic in there, but the movie has some really powerful moments. It, yeah. it got me, as a parent, it really, ca- like, it stole me really easily because it's a very easily to get emotional. If you have kids, it's like, don't watch it if you have kids. Yeah. It's, it's like yeah. the worst experience to go through, but at the same time, it's really... Jake's so good. Gyllenhaal is just incredible. natural charisma. Um, but yeah. what I what I love about Villeneuve is that he's putting extremely challenging moral dilemmas on the screen that yeah. make you question yourself. That's that you great. go, Christ, what the hell would I do in that situation? Would I be? A, would I have integrity, or would I crumble and do something horrific? Yeah. And we don't know those the answers to those questions because we're not tested in daily life yeah. in moral dilemmas. Yeah. You know, the biggest question we have is, you know. Should I go to Starbucks for a coffee? Yeah, um, how, much, how much milk in the coffee? And yeah, um, yeah. So to be confronted <laughs> in a cinematic experience with a real situation that makes you question, yeah, the kind of person you are. He does like a that's, job that's a that. high art form. You yeah, know, it takes a lot to do that. Um, really recommend that. By the way, Prisoners, Sicario, yeah, Enemy. Really, we should talk about Sicario. Enemy, I really liked, and that's a film that I think not a lot of people have seen. I thought was really interesting. I actually have the book. It's based off of a book. Um, I can't remember the name of the book, but um, I remember watching that for the first time. First off, the score is incredible. Those two guys that make that score, um, 
incredible score. And there's mm-hmm. a couple tracks on there are just insanely good. And I think, you know, we should talk a little bit about scores and manipulation with that because you talk about Star Wars without sound and what kind of film is that? It's mm. really non-existent, really. It's, it is there, but it's not, it's like, I feel for me personally, I think, you know, a good score is 80% of the film experience. You know, it's like, it's so much that's just pushing you through the actual experience through it. But I felt like Enemy had a really great job, did a really great job of having the score and the tone and the way it was kind of edging you along. I think, um, like the master had it too. Um, uh, there will be blood as well. Johnny Greenwood and all that stuff. But let's talk about Enemy. What was your take on Enemy? I have only seen it once, and I know that I need to see it more than once to yeah, have a it's, real. It's a, it's an intense you, enemies. You would if, love that. You would go so down that rabbit hole because that film is for rabbit hole thinking people that just get into the nuances of symbology and it's, yeah. it's like a sim, it's full of them. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's obviously psychological. It's pure psychology. Um, yeah. It's you know one guy's internal state of mind being shown on the screen. Yeah, through metaphor, effectively. Yeah, um, but it's. I found it I found it very intense and unnerving. Yeah. And some films I actually have to turn off halfway through, <laughs> take a walk or something. Like yeah. Under the Skin oh, yeah, made me actually feel yeah. like a bit sick. Um I don't know why because it nothing It's really a sickening honest, was it was really yeah, it, it affected me and I don't know why and I haven't analyzed it, but something Have you only watched that is, once? Sorry? Have you only watched that once? I only watched that once. Yeah. And yeah, that's, that's something to keep in mind. If something's affecting you emotionally, yeah something is happening yeah yeah so it's not like it's black black magic there's something in the mechanics of the story or the experience that is affecting you emotionally and that's not completely um that's obviously not coincidence there are mechanics there's causal things happening that create that so it's there is something happening that's worth analyzing 100 percent um but enemy enemy was the 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 most challenging film that i've watched from villeneuve that i found tough oh it's yeah um Prisoners, I just found visceral. I was like gripped. It was easy to digest that film, I think. Yeah. Whereas Enemy, I think you have to go for the ride and you have to really pay attention to certain things. And it's kind of, it'll pull you in and out through the film. So it's a little bit harder to watch, I think. But And then uh, then you go the full spectrum to Glazer's film, you know, Under the Skin, which is like, it's like, it really gets you internally. And that's, again, I, when I watch, when I read like a, a, a horror novel, I want to be scared. When I watch an uncomfortable movie, I want to feel uncomfortable, you know? The film I was re- re- uh, recommending you watch, and I've said it many times, is uh, by uh, Justin Kurzel, who directed... Uh, um, Snowtown Murders. You should watch that. It's really interesting. It's a really powerful film. Talk about uncomfortable films. It's really great, though. Um, yeah, I mean, he, the cool thing about that is... Um, I can't remember his name, but he's doing Blade Runner now, which is really awesome. I think mm. he's going to do a really interesting job. If there's anybody out there to do it, I think it would be that dynamic duel. You got um, his DOP... Uh, I'm trying to blank now. What's the DOP's name? That's uh, doing... Deacons. Yeah, Anthony, yeah, uh, Roger Deakins, sorry, who did uh, No Country. And he's got a really exceptional eye for, you know, putting things together and, you know, really capturing the, the core of the character, you know, because you only have, you know, this two-dimensional image that you're watching and the way that he uses light and stuff is really suggestive. Um, lost my train of thought, but I wanted to ask you about a couple other movies. There's one that I wanted to ask you if you've seen is uh, It Follows. Have you seen that film? Yes. Have, yeah. yeah. Have anyone seen It Follows? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Re- yeah. really recommend that and that yeah. that's actually I've spent some time analyzing that a little bit um, tons there's lots of, of really tons. it's one of those things where you watch that film the first time and you, yeah. you just watch it and take it in but then analytically once you realize the subtext yeah it immediately makes sense and you're like 
Yeah. Oh, this is what every every creative decision is influenced by this subtext. Hundred percent. And then you just go, oh my god, it's anchored to something so personal. Mm-hmm. And it's so personal and actually quite simple. But that's what makes you like that film. I, for me, at least, I you know my, I watched it in the theater twice, I think, and then I've watched it about five times since then, um, because. I think horror is really hard to do. Just like comedy is really hard to do because they're they're so they have to lock on to a certain expression that you get after the after the experience is done. And I think it's really difficult to make a good horror film because of that. Because we all know sitting in there like we're watching a horror film, so we have this preconceived notion that we're going to have you know a jump scare or something like that. And I think it's 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 really difficult. And I felt that he handled that quite well. I'm really excited to see what he does next because. Yeah, as an as somebody that enjoys, it was uncomfortable, and there was weird moments that it was like, uh. But they also had like the Home Alone moment, and there, you know, it's not perfect, but it's it's. Um, I think it's still great too because the build up and everything. Sorry, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, go watch it though. It's really great. Um, lots of movies have the Home Alone movie, moment, and you notice that. I haven't actually. James Bond had the Home Alone movement. What's the one that's before the last one? I'll have to look out for it. I haven't, I haven't noticed it consciously, but, um. I was gonna take that film and then I was gonna cut it and then I was gonna put it in. Yeah, love it. Yeah, yeah. That's a really great film too. And again, talk about powerful score, you know. What I love, I love films, but I love more than any, any other film. I love films that are universally accessible. Mm. And I, I, the more I've studied films, the more I realize that actually, I want, I want a blockbuster. I want a film that everyone can watch together. Mm. I, I love the idea that, that I can show a film to like my parents and, you know, my sister. Yeah. And we can sit down and watch it together and all it. feel it, you know, like yeah. that's, that's the highest art form to get deep into the, the, the areas that everyone shares is like, wow, that's, that's amazing. Like we went to see Inside Out uh, last year and, I went to see it by myself and then I took my sister and then I took my sister, my mum, and my dad. And I was like, this is just amazing. Like, yeah. and, it, and, it, and you know, what's amazing about Inside Out is that it's a resource for families to communicate with. Like once you see Inside Out, it demystifies almost like clarifies some of your internal states in a way that you can almost reference it. If, if I had seen that film when I was young interacting with my parents, we could have almost made a joke out of what was happening with the anger and the disgust, you know, like, yeah. and it, it, it allows they people personified to personified it. Really yeah. Well. yeah. So you're like, well, right now anger's kicking off. Like, and yeah. you can kind of go, ah, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's see it through that lens. As soon as you um, can personify those things. I mean, that's, I think that's what that film does really well. But as soon as you personify things like, you know, if you read, uh, the war of art, no, yeah, no, because he personifies. I talked about it a little bit, but he personifies, you know, procrastination. Cause I think, um, he, he's talking about just, you know, what gets in the way of most people's success mm-hmm. and procrastination is a big deal. I'm, I'm sure you've probably experienced it. Everybody in this room probably has. I have at some point in my life. But, you know, like what Inside Out does, like, for for example, personifying anger, like, oh, shit, I have the anger guy. Like, he's yeah, yeah. Once, but once kicking you, off. you imagine it and it, you manifest it, and you go, oh, okay, well, then I have power over it because it becomes a caricature of my own making. You mm. know? So then you can go ahead and manifest it. But you have a favorite Pixar film that you like? I think, I think I love Inside Out because it, it, it takes a really complicated subject and makes it accessible. And I think that that is the highest achievement yeah. of, a, of a mainstream film. Uh, the Incred- a Incredibles is obviously amazing. Yeah. Um, Incredibles is an animation masterpiece, in my opinion. Like, yeah. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't change a frame of that. I think that's Brad Bird's best, even though Iron Giant's quite amazing. But I think Brad Bird just like smashed it with that one. It's just incredible. Did you like um, Wally? Yes, because it's brilliant visual storytelling. Yeah, it's a silent film for the first hour, and yeah. and he's 
this relatable little dude and he's doing he's like got such a nice temperament that that is so like high in moral value that yeah you you, you cannot dislike the guy any cinema he's just and acting it out though yeah. you're just watching it and again universal you talk about universal access i mean it's half the film is completely ability like anybody from any language and any culture can sit there and watch it and consume it with uh no disruption between it you know mm-hmm. so um so you mentioned blockbusters what are some of your favorites and why Favorites, yeah, all time, yeah, just some that really stand out to um, you. The ones that I've watched the most repetitively, or repeatedly for for years. Terminator, Terminator Two, definitely, just two, not one. Uh, Terminator One, I, I really enjoy. Um, Terminator Two, for, just it just hits on every level. Like whenever I put it on, I just can't. I have to watch it. Down air, down air, now. Yeah, or just the opening sequence, like with the the music. As soon as I hear the music, I'm yeah. literally like paralyzed by just like all sorts of fuzzy feelings. It's just yeah. amazing. Um, but Terminator Two, Jurassic Park, I obviously love. Batman Begins, I've watched a lot. Yeah, uh, that was kind of my introduction to becoming obsessed with film. Um, Batman Begins started it all. Batman Begins is is if you haven't seen it recently, it is. If only superhero movies would go back and reference that origin story. They were really trying to. I think that's what happened with Marvel. They were like, let's make this really seriously. They're serious, but you just can't because this, this, the, you can't take a Superman who's basically Jesus and you can't make him Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne's a human being that's dealing with you know, moral uh, like conundrums the, and stuff. So putting them together, I just, yeah. I just don't, I understand, oh, no. <laughs> I understand the logic that the, no, I'm not the seed of the, that movement was like marketing. And yeah. It, it just, Listen, it, may, I, it may work in a comic book. It doesn't work on screen. Yeah. The, the, the issue I have with these reboots is that they, they copy the surface attributes. So they use one buzzword. Let's yeah. make it dark. Sure. But they don't know what dark means as yes. a construct for the screenplay. Well, dark is, you know, the absence of light, but you need light to make dark yeah. dark. So you have to have both. Well, yeah. When you also need the, the issues that are in play in Batman Begins are deep, deep psychological issues of, of a, a boy who's losing his parents and yeah. growing up with the guilt of feeling responsible for them and then implanting that responsibility into Gotham. Yeah. And it's him, a, a corrupted psychological uh, man, which is why he's divided. He's he's a schizophrenic. Yeah. He's a goddamn guy in a bat suit, and the other part of the time, he's a billionaire. Yeah, like it's a psychological, you know, um, disruption. Yeah, just just to put uh, a new guy in a bat suit and then have it shot with a really grainy dark tone doesn't make it a dark film. It yeah. just it's just pure. It, it, this actually goes back to the style issue. This is why I don't like style because style is easy to identify and it's easy to try and imitate yeah. on a very shallow level. You can imitate a great artist, but it will never be right because you don't imitate all of the the underlying issues that the artist brings with their process. If you just copy the surface, it's meaningless. It's just meaningless shit basically. And superhero movies, if they would uh, simply look at the structure of Batman Begins and the Dark Knight, it's so structured, it's so filled with psychological ideas, so filled with uh, philosophical ideas. Like the Joker, for example, one of the most successful characters in yeah. modern contemporary cinema, really is a personification of an idea. Yeah. He doesn't have a, a backstory. Yeah, which is His great. backstories are constantly shifting. Yeah. You want to know how I got these scars? He's not a person. Yeah. He, even when they, when they capture him, like, what did you find on the guy? Well, no fingerprints, a custom-made suit, and pockets full of knives. Yeah. He isn't a real person. He's a mythological ideal personified yeah even when um what's bruce's uh 
Butler's name, Alfred. Even Bro- Alfred tells like the backstory of the crazy stuff in war where the guys just wanted to be evil, you mm-hmm. know, and it's just kind of supporting the idea that some people just are dark and they're just, that's it, it is. And it's supporting it again. And so that, you know, Bruce is like, I've never faced anything like this. So it's mm-hmm. constantly kind of, you know, ripping at his character and stuff. And really, again, through the film process, it's supporting who Bruce is, why he acts the way he does. And you're absolutely right. I think. You know, style does, it's a facade that you think is there. And this is a conundrum. Probably a lot of people in this room and people are listening are going to be upset with me for saying this, but there's that show, Stranger Things. Have you watched that show? I haven't seen it. I'm not going to see it. Okay, I won't say anything about it. Um, I I haven't seen it, but I got the impression immediately. I I, I realize I'm coming off as an ignorant dickhead. Um, If you haven't seen it, it's tough to make an opinion. um, I haven't seen it, and I'm just I'm not going to. Yeah. Um, I've I've heard I've heard enough. Yeah. Like (laughs) when I when I decided not to watch Mad Max, I heard things from people that completely swayed me back to seeing Mad Max. But I haven't seen Stranger Things. Mm. But everything I've heard from people puts me immediately in the in the side of. Yeah, I'm not gonna. I'm not You're quite similar that. to me. You you don't like to watch stuff that you don't like, but I I have friends that I admire that have really great taste, and they love watching stuff that they hate because it helps them really understand why things don't work. Do you feel that you're missing out on something if you're not watching something that you can learn from in a negative? For me personally, there's only so much time here and I only want to watch stuff that I like and I only want to learn from the things that I like because I know why I like them. Are you similar to that way or are you kind of... No, I've got... I don't have a kitchen anymore. I have a film analysis room and the walls are covered in Jurassic Park notes. (laughs) I mean, like... It's, it's deep. It, no, I'm total. I'm a hermit. Like yeah. I'm a weirdo. Totally <laughs> like a social retard. Uh, You're doing okay. You're talking in front of a crowd here in a podcast. So. Hey, I'm socially competent, not, <laughs> not socially willing. Um, so, um, I don't see the value in watching when a film is constructed from from a position of of chaotic, extrinsic. Uh, a process driven by completely random needs like the marketing guy does a focus group and then halfway through the film changes the intention then they send the edit off to three different people uh to test like just 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 like basically rolling the god that those films do so well like fast and the furious or something that's just like what the fuck I, but I, they do so well and you're just like where am i at am i on the same do like it They, they do well because they're they're there's not an alternative. It's escapism or something? What it's escapism, it? but there's also nothing else on offer. Like, there's, a, there's stuff. It's there's there's stuff. a lot like, of the other stuff, I think, though. I love the technical ability of a film. Like Fast and the Furious, that, don't get me wrong, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, not tarring, I'm not tarring over a film right. as a film. Yeah, I love the Fast and the Furious Transformers are excellent technical achievements. There, there, are, there, are, there are geniuses yeah. contributing to these films. 100%. Yeah. But the core vision of the films is yeah. fundamentally flawed, yeah. which is why they're emotionless and stale. And Fast and the Furious, I watch it and it's spectacular, and I'm happy to watch five minute slots of incredible stunts. That's and, how I and, watched uh, the, the um, Transformers. I was like, uh, okay. Uh, watch like, a little bit. Uh, and yeah. I just looked at <laughs> Yeah, it's built for the internet. It's yeah. built for YouTube. Yeah, it's but built for YouTube, yeah. What kind of mindset does Michael Bay have that he thinks that three hours of it is like in one sitting? How dare he, Michael I, Bay? I, 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 once again, I'm it's arrogant. Okay, I don't care. Well, like, you need to have the full... It's, it's shit. Yeah, like, you need to have the full spectrum though, right? You can't just... We can't just have, you know what we like you have to have the stuff that isn't because i think again as i'm going back to the original question it's like we need to have things that support our opinions by the things that we don't like you know and i think it's important to understand why those things don't work and why those 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 things you know that, that no you're right you're right but i find that the value in 
if you watch a film that has no underlying structure, all you're going to learn is that it has no underlying structure. If you watch a film that has brilliant structure, you could study it for your entire life and still never fully com- like comprehend its brilliance. Like a great friend. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah basically. Like, yeah. Y- you can either watch a hundred movies at a very shallow level, or you can watch one movie to, to such a depth that you understand every single piece of its anatomy. Yeah. Um, and for me, that's, I'm in that mindset. Like, I'm, I'm not saying that it's bad to watch lots of films. Yeah. The human spectrum is filled with lots of different uh, emotions. emotions and reactions to things. And I'm not yeah. saying that my way is right. I'm saying that, that I need to watch one thing to a deep level. And for me, I don't have enough hours in the day yeah. to go and waste it, waste three of those hours on robots kicking each other to death. Yeah. Um, it's a beautiful spectacle, but there's also been five or six of these things now. I'm not seeing anything new I didn't yeah. see in 2007. It's the same with the Fast and Furious. There's like 20 of them now. It's like CSI or something. I don't know. It's, yeah. It's not yeah. <laughs> franchising but it, it, it. But it, I don't know. It's like, you know, even like the Kardashians or Donald Trump. I think, you know, the, 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 the shitty kid cries the loudest, gets the most attention. It's like, why? You know, but I, I get it. It's a, it's a psychological conundrum, you know? I hope you were not expecting a positive, uh, happy mic. I'm just a, I'm just like a seething ball. We're of keeping anger. it real, guys. No, I mean, but there is okay. Let's let's do some positive stuff then. Let's talk about positive. So because I think there is a ton of positive things when you recognize brilliance and you discover it yourself. And I think, I think when you study brilliance, whether you realize it or not, you're you're trying to achieve brilliance internally, right? Mm-hmm. Would you say? And you're trying to figure out the formula. Mm-hmm. The problem is, I think that there is no formula. I've been searching like high and dry. I'm I'm only 33, so I have many years to try and search for myself. I'm going to do my best to try and make my own film, and whatever that happens, it's going to be you know a culmination of my own taste. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, how do you you know? One thing I want to talk about before we get uh, we close this off is do you when you're going through and you're studying these films whether it's like a film that could use a little bit of help are you reprogramming it in your head like when I watched the new Star Wars I was like ah you know like what and so I started thinking about you know how I would reconstruct those characters and move things around do you do that as well I, I rewrite the script like not word for word but I rewrite it and kind of figure out do you ever try that I do a number of things when I watch a film. One of the things I do is I get it straight into Premiere and I start cutting up the scenes okay. and I start color coding segments that represent different parts of the, the thread. Wow. So scenes, for example, in Jurassic Park, I, I went through and identified all the scenes with, with Alan Nelly and color coded them in a specific way and moved them to different timelines. Ah. And then I move around the, the, the film randomly. Like, so I'll, I'll chop and re, and just completely flip scenes in completely different places yeah. and just see what the juxtaposition there is. And then you suddenly start to see that there are some things that actually fit together huh. and you realize that actually they're designed to fit together, um, but they're just sequentially separated. Yeah. And interesting. I do all sorts of abstract, weird stuff that would probably unnerve my parents if they saw me sitting in my underwear in my kitchen surrounded by post-it notes and premiere <laughs> with cut up uh, you know, segments of Jurassic Park 20 years after it was made. But, but the... the <laughs> The reason I do it is because I'm looking for abstract patterns Hmm. and I'm looking for not necessarily what was consciously constructed with the film. Sure. But I'm looking for what is making me react to this film. Yeah. And I do believe that there's a causal logic behind it. And I do believe that the the more understanding you have of that causal logic, the more you might have the possibility of recreating the genius and that the experience that I'm, I'm on the, I'm in a different position. I think that actually things are understandable 
Mm. Um, I'm, I'm never going to learn all of it, of course. But sure. But I that's think, beautiful, though, right? You'll yeah. never know it all. Never know it all. Yeah. Um, there's something that you're going to learn every day. Isn't that beautiful, though? Like yeah. the idea that there's something that can change your life. I always think that a brilliant idea is literally in your grasp, and you just have to like kind of reach out and grab yeah. it. And by reaching out and grab it is is you know picking up a book. Um, and reading it and, and being an, and analyzing it and understanding the thought. You know, the thing I love about books is being able to go back to somebody's mind hundreds of years ago and go like, wow, that's, you're thinking about some weird stuff here. You know, this is great and really being inspired by it. Um, I guess we could wrap it up. Do we want to do questions or anything? Maybe like a couple, a couple minutes? Well, if we do questions, I could repeat it in the mic and then people that are listening to it. How about like, Three minutes of questions? Uh, yeah, let's do, let's do three minutes. Three minutes, okay. All right, first question. So have you come across like a, a film that's been very well constructed, but in a, ba- in a bad way? So not, you know, like in you were saying, Terminator teaches you stuff that he's put subconsciously mm. that is good. Mm-hmm. Have you come across stuff that teaches you like bad. Well, there are films that, that use really, really well structured, like Godfather, for example, is structured in exactly the same way as, as a monomyth. Uh, and what it teaches you is, what it shows you is characters doing morally bad things, but it's framed in such a way that it doesn't celebrate those bad things. So it teaches you by inverting the moral spectrum by saying, well, here's Michael Corleone. He's a good guy at the beginning and now he's bad. Um, I've yet to see a film work that has a good structure but has poor moral values and i think that yeah. it's because humanity just rejects it's that storytelling it's yeah, yeah. It, basically the it structure resonate. yeah totally like the structure goes hand in hand with the values and humanity knows what is good and bad like we naturally know we wouldn't have survived millions of years if we even gravitated slightly towards default evil we become evil over time and if a story but like, i think for me i ran to yesterday about jurassic world the reason that people don't feel much in there is because it's structurally fine. It's got really nice special effects. It's visually stunning. Yeah. Um, great CGI. Um, but ultimately, it's truly heartless. It's got no moral value. So many of those films are. Now. They're completely lacking in yeah. social fiber. And, and yeah. because of that, you, f- you, you don't feel anything. You don't feel bad. You just feel empty because the, the moral core isn't being stimulated. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that answers the question. But, yeah, it does. Yeah. But I think you can structure things really well. You can make an art form out of a film. But if it doesn't have the right values, then the structure is useless. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I second that. <laughs> Hi, thanks. Thank you. First yeah, of welcome. all, uh, speaking of films, you can you could study forever. I think a good example are Miyazaki films. Yeah. What are some of your favorites, and do you have Brilliant. like a take on it that you could? You can take this because I've only seen Spirited Away. Oh, really? that's that's a Miyazaki film. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, lo- I loved that. By the way, I thought that was like you watch really amazing. Mononoke. No. Yeah, that was beautiful. Um, I don't have anything. To, so I don't know m- much about it, but it was cool. They're like, so layered. They're so. You should go another rabbit hole. You know, like they're so layered, and there's so much depth to it. And you really understand the love that he has. He actually made a um, a documentary about his process recently. I think it's like the the Kingdom of Dreams and Madness. I think it's called. Yeah. Some people are nodding. I think that's it. Okay. Um, my favorite, one of my favorites is his first film. It's uh, Lupin 
I guess I say um, the the Castle of Cagliostro. I think I love that film. It's freaking so good. It's it's pure entertaining, brilliantly done, old, but it's awesome. And it's 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 again, you're seeing a genius do what that genius does, and nothing beats that. Really, it's just you know, it's I, I guess we can relate it to like other scientists trying to understand Einstein's mind and how he came up with relativity or something. You know, you're just trying to figure out well, how did this guy do that? You know. And, it's the same thing. Your pursuit of understanding, you know, the genius mind behind things is... Uh, yeah, well, measure, yeah, try and measure yourself against people that are truly great. Like, that's the ultimate way to learn is, yeah. is to recognize that you're like, these guys are incredible. It's awesome. And how can you learn from those guys? Like, be, I think being action-oriented and just doing what you do and following your passion and just being your life, whether like you talked about earlier, like, you know, if there's a million people butting heads against, but you have your direction, it's like, fuck, that's your opinion, you know? Like, you, if you have it, just go with it, you know? So, and it sounds like you don't need help with that, though. You got it. So. <laughs> and uh, it. with that, I have to thank you, everyone. We're yeah, a little bit over time. Yeah. And that concludes this week's episode. Big thank yous to everyone. Also, massive thank yous to Industry Workshops for allowing this episode to be, take place during their event. And then, of course, Mike Hill for coming on the show and sharing his time with us this week. You can find links to the show notes for this week's episode at thecollectivepodcast.com slash 139, along with links to our Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes podcast page. Have an amazing day, everybody. You know the drill. Go be powerful. Go be prolific. Peace out.